This episode of Author Stories is brought to you by the Writing Mastery Academy. Founded by Jessica Brody, author of the best-selling plotting guide, Save the Cat Writes a Novel. The Writing Mastery Academy features online, on-demand writing courses, including the official Save the Cat Writes a Novel companion course, novel fast drafting, crafting dynamic characters, and productivity hacks for writers to name just a few, plus monthly live webinars on various writing topics. Go to jessicabrody.com slash hank to learn more and get your first month of unlimited access to all the content for just $6. That's right, just $6. jessicabrody.com slash hank. You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret White. Terry Brooks. Sheena Kamal. Matthew Quick. J.T. Ellison. Walt D. Williams. Brad Ford. Corey Doctorow. Brandon Sanders. Robin Mom. Ernest Klein. Jim Butcher. Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am really excited to have Lawrence Burgreen on the show with me. He has an amazing new book. It's called In Search of a Kingdom, Francis Drake, Elizabeth I, and the Perilous Birth of the British Empire. And What a fascinating book. Uh, I, I I absolutely love it. It captivated me from the very beginning, and uh, I know people are going to definitely want to grab this book. Uh, welcome to the show, Lawrence. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here with you. Thanks for having me. I, I'm excited to have you. Um, Lawrence, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? <laughs> oh, that's a really good question. That's a tough question. Actually, I remember being taught to read. In other words, being taught to decode letters when I was in uh, – it must have been first grade, and I, I can still remember the teacher writing that, and um, I was able to, mathematically, not so quick, but verbally, I was able to pick this up very quickly, and before you knew it, I could read, I could write, I could read, and then I started writing. Uh, within a few months, I started writing stories, and this was purely intuitive. Later on, when I got older and I tried to do it intentionally, I wasn't that good at it. Um, I couldn't reproduce that, you know, doing that in total innocence. So it just goes back to, you know, when I was a kid and uh, I'd also been, was a big reader um, and I would read anything. I wasn't that much in favor of, quote, children's literature uh, as opposed to just any kind of books that were around the house. Some of them were kids' books, but uh, some of them were adult books. And um, so it was just a, a kind of intuitive fascination or attraction do you remember what the first book or series or or maybe an author that uh that when you read that book that it just completely transported you and and gave you the feeling that books could be a gateway to another world uh yes but there are probably several candidates and uh some of them were um you know, fables and fantasy stories, uh, science fiction, uh, Ray Bradbury, you know, like. Oh, Ray yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes it was stories that I 
that I made up myself. Uh, I can remember uh, being in some some plays which were very uh, captivating to me. Um, so I'm trying to think of anything else that was specific. I think that uh, one of the um, earliest uh, collections of uh, short stories and fa- and fantasy stories for kids, but I have to say, you know, kids' stories per se, you know, they didn't do it for me because I felt they were condescending and simplified and uh, I liked whatever was the real thing. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea made a really big impression on me. Um, and uh, that was uh, Captain Nemo and all that. That was, that was I, I read that um, over and over. If I, if I liked a book, I would read it and reread it and, and reread it. Um, and uh, that was certainly among the first. Um, then uh, when I got a little bit older, I was fascinated by a book called Annapurna, which was kind of a precursor of the you know recent wave of mountain climbing books where people are starving for oxygen and you know dying on the slopes of Mount Everest. And Annapurna was in that genre, and I remember just being absolutely gripped by it. And uh, you know it was so much more vivid than um, you know the things that were on a standard curriculum for uh you know reading that's the other thing my reading habits tended to be you know off the curriculum you know it was these books <laughs> which were much more far out uh than uh, you know things that were you know being assigned to us which i found rather tame i, I remember oh being assigned some books about uh some sort of naval stories for kids and just being completely bored by them because they were kind of pre-processed and everything was rather, you know, according to Hoyle and, you know, predictable and all the adventure was gone. And uh, I think the adventurousness is is always uh, what appeals to me. Um, so uh, anyway, that's a partial answer. That's a fascinating answer. And, and I completely agree with you on, on so many things. Um, you know, the, one reason that most kids don't like history and history is one of the the most, uh, you know, dreaded courses in, in school and in high school, uh, a lot of times we'll we'll assign the teaching of history to a teacher that that doesn't have anything else to do. A lot of times you'll have coaches and things like that that wind up teaching history and, and it becomes um reciting rote facts about things and and, and it's just getting yes. kids to regurgitate right. um you know bullet points and and yeah. i understand that the the farther we get away from an historical event the more that it sort of gets reduced to bullet points because it, a, a lot has happened in the world and it's just hard to cover everything yeah. um yeah. but in reading your books and looking over your catalog um there is this this sense of adventure that that yeah. comes back up and and I see that that is that's something that that you were drawn to very early on um what is it about history that uh that fascinates you so and and I, I guess what I'm uh, how did you get intrigued um by history and and not become one of the the people that just dreads it and hates it because it is did you have a great teacher at some point or well I had some very good teachers not necessarily in history. The, the, you know, the curriculum, the course that I really dreaded was math. That's my, 
I'm Bette Noir, I think I mentioned that uh, a few minutes ago. Um, history was okay because, you know, I can absorb, I can always read quickly, absorb facts and data pretty quickly, kind of inhaling it. However, I have a confession to make. I always found history, and I still find history boring. I find your normal standard 400-page history book boring. And, you know, it's a collection of organized uh, knowledge and great. Um, and what, most are boring. What, pardon? And, and most are boring. Yeah. And, <laughs> if we're just I'll, honest. I can't remember who was it who defined, was it uh, a Victorian uh, history, def, a definition of history is the actions of men, we would now say the actions of men and women or women and men in pursuit of their aims. And that seems a better definition. So what really interests me about history is the people. And uh, in, in, in college, I majored in English and American literature, and I became much more interested in character and people and how people behave and how they interact. So that was really my way into history. So, you know, I started out as a biographer. Now I write on a somewhat larger canvas. Uh, but um, that was the beginning was trying to get inside somebody's head to empathize with them if possible. Sometimes you can't, they're so different. Um, or just describe what they're like. You can describe them from the inside, you can describe them from the outside, There's and, and everything in between. So I think that's really what interested me. And then gradually, I, I got into history. Um, but you know, the first books I wrote, James Agee, Louis Armstrong, Irving Berlin, were, were, were quite different. However, it was often their times, their circumstances, that really gripped me because they were so particular and so idiosyncratic. The world that Louis Armstrong grew up in, totally d different from mine, was fascinating. And of course, it made him what he was. And to learn about it was, I considered, fascinating, almost a great privilege. And, uh, you know, that happens over and over again. I don't think I'd actually be able to write a biography of somebody who was a little bit like me because I would find it boring. So something, somebody or something that's different is uh, automatically intriguing. I think that, um, you know, there's, of course, an endless range of people to write about as biographies. The kind of biography I'm not that fond of anymore is the cradle-to-grave biography, which used to be the gold standard. Most of the best or some of the best biographies are certainly in that mold. I'm thinking of Richard Elman and, and other books, um, you know, are, are fantastic. Uh, uh, Edmund Morris, who wrote the three-volume biography of uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Edmund was a friend and recently deceased. That, that was those three volumes were, were cradle to grave, but they're also magnificent and full of action and adventure. But um, others, as a, as a kind of approach, it kind of leaves me cold. And, uh, you know, the, the question is, how do you get at the truth of somebody and, and their times? And it's, it's, it's complicated. I often think that um, uh, the historians of antiquity, uh, Livy, Tacitus, uh, and uh, Herodotus um, really did it best. If I often go back and read their accounts when I'm working on a book for various reasons. First of all, they're generally accurate. Secondly, they are remarkably objective. Uh, third, they just organize the material, you know, fantastically. You know, give, you know, and then consider the technological differences. They don't have computers or even typewriters or even yellow pads. They were probably writing on clay tablets or dictating to a stenographer, often working from memory. 
Um, but this, in a way, forced them to be very good at things because they didn't have these uh, uh, technological crutches. Their, their memory was fantastic, and they were concise. If you read a few pages of uh, Plutarch uh, or Livy, you're getting a lot of stuff, and it might take a contemporary historian a whole chapter to cover the same ground. But they, 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 they boil it down to the essence. And, uh, you know, if you want to know what's the story, what really matters, you know, I, I read them because of this uh, terrific um, precision that uh, they write with. And I, I don't think anybody's really done it better since then. There have been other approaches. You get anecdotal approaches like Samuel Johnson and uh, other people. But... Um, you know, this, uh, you know, Boswell's Life of Johnson. But, you know, this, anyway, for me, that is sort of the ultimate gold standard. Are you looking for software that helps you bring your novel to life? Novelize is a web-based writing app which allows you to access your work on any device with a browser and an internet connection. Right from your desktop, laptop, tablet, or smartphone. Just get the novel written. Say goodbye to sticky notes. With our notebook on the side, you can keep track of all the important information you need to write your novel. We keep distractions to a minimum, help you track your progress, and encourage you to write more novels. You can even use the same notebook for your novels in a series. Outline, write, or organize your novel by switching between modes. You can write your outline notes while you're writing, and you can move scenes and chapters around anytime in the organize mode. Choose between the dark and light theme to help prevent eye strain so that you can stay immersed in your book. Novelize, the app for writers by writers. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website. Developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates, PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. What's the difference in an historian and a biographer? Is it simply the the scope of focus? 
I think so. I think, you know, there's certainly overlap, and I think there are some historians who are biographers and vice versa, but, you know, a biographer is basically you're focused on somebody's life, and as I said, it's the cradle-to-grave approach, uh, and, uh, you know, it gives you a window on the world. If you're writing a biography of Darwin, for example, you have a window on an enormous world of uh, society, of travel, and, of course, of science and philosophy, so it's a highly highly suggestive field. Others, you know, could be somewhat more limiting. Early on, my first biography that I wrote, which was published in 1984, uh, was of James Agee, the writer, who was kind of a cult figure. Those who like Agee are crazy about him, and I was certainly one of those people. And, you know, he was a very difficult, complicated figure. But, you know, the uh, his life, which is really fascinating, you know, the, the amount of light that it shines, um, you know, on his times in society is limited you know it's uh he, he died young and his concerns were very focused on uh, somewhat narrowly focused and uh so it, it varies from person to person there are you know wonderful biographies that are can be in a limited field i kind of like i don't know why it's just my temperament when the thought of doing uh, magellan came along and now uh, drake uh, because it encompasses the entire world, um, it was sort of an impossible challenge. And uh, I thought, well, that would be very uh, exciting to have that sense of travel. I love to travel. I'm a, well, I've been, you know, pinned down with the pandemic like everyone. But, uh, you know, I love going places all the time. And I'd, I'd be happily, happy traveling all the time if I could, or, well, most of the time. So that sense of, um, being on the move of seeing things, uh, you know, again, the Greek, no, the Latin expression, you know, of exploring, to go and see something um, is, uh, you know, is a very strong impulse uh, in me. Uh, the other thing that really excites me is original sources. Uh, I'm not too excited about somebody else's, you know, take, no matter how eloquent uh, on a certain situation. I'm interested in hearing about it in the participants' own words, uh, trying to see it through their own eyes, uh, which is very different. Um, you know, for me, history is a is a sort of a relief because it affords me an escape for myself. Uh, normally, I feel like maybe most people, I'm I'm uh, kind of stuck with myself and my own concerns and my own worries, and it's it's somewhat limited. It's very monotonous at times. When I'm writing uh, about an explorer, th- those concerns fall away. You know, there's there's no limits, and uh, you know, it's as big as the world or even bigger. So. You know, I'm always happier writing about something totally unfamiliar. And uh, I, uh, if somebody said, oh, you should write about growing up in Westchester, which is a suburb I grew up in, uh, north of New York City, I wouldn't do a good job. I wouldn't be interested. You know, somebody else might be fascinated and bring out extraordinary details and insights, but I, I, I couldn't, you know, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Uh, so it's the, I guess, the lure of things that are different, that are unknowable, uh, of projecting yourself into situations uh, that you might not even know how they exist. Um, it, it's fascinating. Of course, once you do, it, it's not so much that you become the other. It's that you wind up finding common ground. Uh, you find impulses or forces that we all share, um, uh, that are universal, even though they're expressed in, in different ways. And uh, I find that, you know, really fascinating, too. As soon as I started to travel, I realized, well, it's a really big world out there. But, uh, you know, there are 
points of connection, which are, you know, really important if you can find them. And it's, they're like, uh, I don't know, a guide rope or something uh, through these, uh, you know, very, very different areas. Um, and uh, so I have this, I guess, a kind of hunger for novelty. And I'm, I don't know, often uh, happier when I'm uh, being stretched and in an unfamiliar situation than when I'm really on home ground. I, I, I tend to get bored quickly that way. From James Ag to uh, Louis Armstrong, uh, Irving Berlin, uh, and and then historical figures like Casanova and Marco Polo, uh, and then even uh, you know kind of broader topics like the voyage to Mars. Um, How do you land on a topic? What is it that? What's that initial um, thing that grabs your attention and makes you want to dig in? Um, I guess first to, to find out if there is a story worth telling there. And then, um, you know, like how do, how do you choose the subjects that you write about? Um, I feel that they choose me. Um, at any given time, I probably got a, I have a list of, say, 20 subjects. Uh, 15 of them are trite or they've been done or they're not very promising for some reason, but they're there. And sometimes a not very good idea will lead you to a good idea. Um so I, I kind of keep them going. And I felt, uh, I'm sure the AG book was born out of my aspirations to become a writer because AG is all about writing and he's, you know, very self-involved. And so if you're in that phase of your life, then, you know, he has a great deal of appeal. I'm sure I wouldn't write a book like that today. I've just sort of outgrown that. Um, the exploration book started, that's kind of a separate genre. Uh, quite by accident, I was... After I finished the Louis Armstrong biography, I was going through some changes in my life, and I was really feeling burned out in many ways, uh, personally, and also in terms of writing, and what would be exciting or something. And by through a series of, of accidents, I had a chance to write about uh, NASA's exploration of Mars. And I kept warning everybody at NASA who was uh, inviting me to do this, that my last book was about you know, an extraordinary jazz musician. It's not the same size. <laughs> it's different, but that didn't seem to deter them. And uh, so I got fascinated in learning more about uh, scientific approaches to things, uh, mathematical approaches, which I've been, you know, very insecure about. Um, I was caught up in their collective uh, enthusiasm and the implications for what they were doing. So, and their, their kind of discovery and exploration is, well, I guess we would call it virtual because it's on other planets or it's circling the Earth. But it seemed to me to be the modern uh, version of uh, earlier books about pirates and things that had fascinated me when I was um, uh, younger. And then there was a project. There was a a, a mission at um, NASA called Magellan, which was sending uh, some spacecraft to Mars. And they named it after Magellan for obvious reasons because... He's a famous explorer and circumnavigator. And um, I wasn't sure what my next book would do. Very, very slowly, over a period of years, I thought, I wonder if Magellan would be an interesting subject for a book. This is the background for Drake. Uh, Now, my son, Nick, is a big sailor. He raises lasers, which are very small sailboats. Uh, They're like a surfboard with a sail stuck in it. And I spent a lot of time with Nick, out on the water with Nick, um, and being kind of uh, imbued with sailing culture, if you will. 
And um, so it was in the back of my mind to write a book that has something to do with sailing. Then I finally started to read about Magellan. There wasn't that much on him that was available in English. And I thought, this is a hell of a story. Uh, and um, so I, I, I began with that. I noticed that the books about him ended when he got killed in the Philippines. You know, he was killed in a war, uh, a very unnecessary battle with uh, Philippine uh, indigenous people. And uh, I thought, well, actually, well, what happened to the rest of the voyage? And I thought, you know what? That's the focus of the book should be the circumnavigation, not his life. So the book I wrote was the story of the circumnavigation and continued it until the end. And it had an incredible end. So it was really a book about, you know, the whole story. And, you know, I, I knew the next circumnavigator who was about 60 years later was Francis Drake, who went at the with the kind of uh, silent cooperation of Queen Elizabeth. And I knew for years he would be coming up next at some point because he was a successful Magellan. Uh, he succeeded at the end where Magellan was killed. He brought back a fortune uh, and, uh, you know, it made a huge difference. Uh, Magellan's voyage was, you know, the definition of tragic. Uh, Drake had this, um, in some ways, you know, like a typical pirate, you know, uh, hell-bent, enthusiastic, incredibly brave, cheerful, lucky, um, and, uh, you know, cunning, very cunning as well. So I thought, well, at some point, this would be a great adventure story. As I began to think about it, this happened by a process of, of accretion and about his times in Elizabethan history. I realized his, you know, the, silent, the other important person was his silent partner, Elizabeth. And there were some books about Elizabeth and the various pirates or corsairs um, whom she uh, backed on the QT. But Drake, of course, was the most important and the most successful. Um, it seemed to me as I was writing about Elizabeth, you know, as a biographer, uh, she was not a nice person. She was very difficult, very, could be very deadly uh, to deal with, um, had survived and become queen through, you know, a series of extraordinary uh, coincidences, uh, you know, never married, um, had, uh, was, was uh, you know, lived a life of constant stress. Uh, there were at least 14 attempts on her life uh, while she was queen. There, there may have been more. So, you know, she lived on the edge, to put it mildly. So I thought the contrast between these two people, the only thing they had in common was they both had red hair. You know, they were both risk takers. And uh, they were both supremely uh, strategic in the way they approached things. You know, it would be fascinating. So to a certain extent, this is a book about Elizabeth and Drake. Um, they didn't know each other well, according to popular mythology. They were lovers, but they, they really weren't. Um, she probably... If, if she had a lover, it was probably some people drawn from higher ranks of nobility. Uh, but it was clearly in a very important relationship, especially when he came home with the gold from the circumnavigation. England desperately needed that gold because they were going under. This was a very poor country, and you know they were just about to be invaded and almost at any time by Spain, which was the Death Star of the era. They were the big kahuna, the big empire. And... Uh, you know, Philip, uh, King Philip of Spain was fond of her. Uh, and even though she was uh, uh, Protestant, he was Catholic, didn't mind, he, he didn't care. And so he, he wanted her personally and he wanted to co op uh, England. That would have been a big coup. Um, it never got there, partly because Drake gave her 
the material resources, the diamonds, the gold, uh, and the jewelry, uh, to fund England's survival. So that's why he was important to her and uh, wasn't so much for idealism. However, you know, in the, in the process of doing that, doing this, you know, the notion of a British empire came along. You know, we think when we say the sun never sets on the British empire, that's a phrase we grew up hearing. Sure. In Drake's day, the phrase that everybody heard was the sun never sets on the Spanish empire because Spain was the dominant power in the West and uh, they controlled everything. They had control of a great deal of North and Central and South America. Uh, they had much more money than anybody else. Um, they spent a, a lot of it on military things, not so much for the benefit of uh, Spanish people. And they had the uh, monolithic Catholic Church behind them. So, you know, for all these reasons, they, they were very powerful. Uh, so Drake was seemed rather insignificant to them when he went around stealing Spanish supplies and stockpiles of gold <laughs> up and down the coast of South America and Brazil and Chile. Uh, it, it was for Spain. It was a big deal for him in England. For Spain, it was kind of an annoyance. You know, it, it wasn't really enough gold to matter a lot. They were losing. There was a lot of I don't know spillage or whatever you want to call it. Anyways, they were trying to. Uh, transport gold back to Spain or wherever else they were selling it. Uh, but but Drake had, he actually fun, and I think fun is the right word, tweaking their nose, uh, partly because there was a uh, kind of bad blood between Drake, partly it's because there was bad blood or rivalry between Catholic Spain and Protestant England, although England was very sharply divided between Catholics and Protestants itself. And partly because Drake had earlier experiences when he was a pirate as a young man, which set him dead against Spain permanently. And uh, he was always trying to get revenge for the frustrations and humiliations he'd suffered. This was the era of the Spanish Inquisition, which I write about in the book, which is, you know, a terrifying, terrifying entity. And it wasn't just in Spain. It was around the world where in... in uh, South America, people were, you know, part of this, I don't know what you'd call a global penal colony, is maybe not too much of an exaggeration, uh, of the Spanish Inquisition, of people who had fallen afoul of it. One of which was a cousin of his, and he was very aware of it, that this cousin was held hostage for a long term uh, by the Spanish Empire in this humiliating, uh, punitive way. If, uh, you know, the best you could cope, hope to get out of this was being marched around in a grotesque costume and paraded in, in, in public uh, as a figure of scorn. And, and the worst would be burned at the stake, uh, which was very common. So um, in an era of the Spanish Inquisition, you know, Spain was, you know, an automatic uh, villain. England, which was, you know, we talk about human rights and everything. The concept didn't exist. England was a lot less cruel than Spain. Let's Let's put it that way. We have to kind of adjust our thinking, you know. We, we can't apply our our own standards of human rights or fairness to to that era, which was much, much more brutal. Uh, but, uh, you know, Drake managed to survive. And, uh, you know, which was partly as a result of luck, luck. He was the oldest of 12 siblings. I think many of them, if not most, uh, perished uh, before they reached adulthood. He was, he was a survivor. Uh, so it was partly luck, but partly because he had survival techniques. And, you know, he 
was exceedingly ambitious. The, perhaps the biggest payoff was when he completed the circumnavigation, by the way, using Magellan's uh, documents and maps and you know, benefiting uh, from his mistakes, um, Elizabeth uh, raised him to the nobility. And uh, so he became Sir Francis Drake, even though he had been, he had come from a modest background in Devon. So this was a big deal. And not only that, she gave him a big castle, Buckland Abbey, which is now a national trust, and you can visit it in England. Um, and his, coincidentally, his first wife had died, and he married, his second wife was uh, from the nobility. So, you know, he became one of the wealthiest men in England and kind of a, you know, incredible success story. But he was also incredibly lucky because many people who were, trying to steal gold from Spain or circumnavigate or explore, just didn't come back. They didn't survive. Uh, he uh, was one of the lucky few. Um, and, uh, you know, he enjoyed her protection. Um, at the same time, she kind of kept him under wraps. When he returned from the circumnavigation, she, uh, there, was not, there was no ticker tape parade. Uh, there was no big celebration. Uh, even Magellan's men, the survivors of his voyage, which was a tragic one, uh, came back and there was a rather sad procession through uh, the streets of Seville. It was Easter time and they were doing penance and they were uh, walking on, on bare knees. There was nothing like this with Drake. Everything was secret. When she got a hold of that gold, the first thing she did was lock it away in the Tower of London and denied to everybody that Drake had brought anything back. The Spain, their spies were very suspicious and they were they were on to Drake, but she kept saying, gold? What gold? And she kept this up for a long time, and she kept it up so long that, you know, people sort of believed her. Uh, meanwhile, they were, you know, storing the gold that Drake had brought back away safely. Uh, that also meant that he could not write an account or dictate an account bragging about his incredible accomplishment. One of the downsides of that is the scientific return from that voyage is rather limited. We actually have more from Magellan because he had he brought record keepers with him. They wrote about it, and we heard about you know his findings with stars and navigation and and uh, the climate and the trade winds. We don't have that much information about Drake because you know it was all lost. England wasn't interested in that. The focus was completely uh, commercial, i.e., gold. Uh, so he wanted to write about it and get credit for being the first successful circumnavigator in the world, pretty big deal. But it was years until it happened. There was a kind of an official account of English explorers uh, printed, uh, written, compiled by an author named Hacklett. And the first edition that came out a year or two after Drake's return omitted him. So this is if you were writing a book about space exploration and it was published a year or two after men first walked on the moon, and you left out Neil Armstrong. Uh, and, uh, I mean, completely. Finally, there was a new edition that came out eight or ten years later, which included Drake, uh, because I, by then the issues were, were less sensitive and England's claims were becoming stronger. So, you know, he, was, he won widespread public recognition rather late in the day. Uh, Although by then he kept up being a pirate. He was fighting more battles on the half of England uh, in uh, Central and South America. Um, when I say on behalf of England, I should put an asterisk there. He always kept something for himself. 
he there was he, there was something of a thief about him, and uh, you know he would he would take some of this gold that he got and and uh, store it away for himself and would not report it to England and you know they 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 sort of asked but they really didn't want to know uh, so they let him get away with it because you know he was such an extraordinary uh, resource uh, for England I think history. If Drake hadn't lived, if he hadn't completed these missions, for sure England would have tried something like it, but probably they wouldn't have succeeded, and, and things would have been very different. I think uh, England would not have become particularly prominent uh, in exploration and, and in world affairs. Uh, the British Empire might have been uh, stunted. Oh, one more thought about English, um, English Empire. Drake happened to come along, and this, this, this happens in, quote, history, unquote, at times, when the thought of a British Empire was in the air. And uh, there was a fascinating character who seemed like he walked out of the pages of a Harry Potter novel called John Dee, D-E-E. Right. Used to be much more famous. And he was a mathematician. He was the first person to uh, introduce uh, zero and plus and minuses and, you know, what we think of as being pretty common mathematical symbols and calculations to England. Uh, he was a mystic uh, and uh, and sort of an academic. Um, and he also, in his mysticism, conceived of the idea of a British empire and wrote a pamphlet about it, and it was popularized with Elizabeth. So it was kind of in the air. This was part of the zeitgeist that there was a potential for a, a British empire. And Drake's voyage fit into that very neatly. Uh, so, you know, that became the kind of by accident uh, theoretical basis for it uh so you know drake happened to choose his moment in history you know very fortunately it was really a, a confluence of events that that made him important and uh the reason why we remember him but even in england i think they don't really give him credit so much for the british empire which you know then uh began to expand and expand uh, they think of him as uh their guy fighting off the spanish uh, and their guy who was the dashing, uh, red-haired pirate, kind of a folkloric figure. Uh, even in his lifetime, he had a, you know, took on a legendary quality. Um, in Spain, he was called El Draque, the, the dragon. Uh, there were myths about him that I think some people believe, because the Spanish at that time were mystical, that he had a special telescope where he could see anywhere around the world uh, with his health. Uh, and other myths that made him seem larger than life. And they were, you know, they were very threatened about him. Uh, but keep in mind, this is an era, even, you know, John Dee had an I, you know, often spent a lot of time uh, speaking to ghosts um, through, an, through a medium. Um, he had a special stone, which I happened to see when I was doing research in, in London at the uh, British Museum, called a scrying scone, that's S-C-R-Y-I-N-G, and apparently if you held it up, you looked, I mean, this really sounds like Harry Potter, if you looked it up, uh, if you looked, looked, held it up, you would look at it and see the reflection of distant people, uh, you know, some alive, some dead, and you could speak to them uh, through this stone, and a lot of people believed it. I, I imagine as being huge, when I actually went to see the the actual ones they were very small they were about the size of uh, a 50 cent piece you know they were they were kind of you could put them in your pocket 
So these are the famous uh, scrying stones. And people generally believed in ghosts. Drake was highly superstitious. Uh, he believed in witches. Um, witches were a very common belief in England at that point. And uh, so here you have Drake, who was in some ways very strategic and rational and calculating, um, you know, plagued with a sense of uh, there were witches around when he suspected some of his officers uh, were going to mutiny him against him uh, early on in the voyage when they were uh, traveling south along the coast of South America. And uh, one of them was a guy named John Doughty, and he accused him of being a witch. You know, men could be witches as well as women. Uh, mostly they were women, but they were also male witches. And uh, witches were thought to have a special animal that accompanied them. It could be a cat or something else, which was called a familiar. So this was all part of the, you know, witch lore, which was very prevalent and widely believed in England at that time. So you had this funny combination of uh, forward-looking, uh, you know, commerce and uh, politics with, uh, you know, beliefs that were, you know, medieval. I don't know what other word to use um, or, or quaint or, you know, backward looking. And, you know, Drake kind of epitomized that. He had, you know, one foot in each each camp. Uh, and uh, so that's part of what made him fascinating to me. Now, can, can you get inside Drake's head as a biographer the way you can get inside the head of James Agee or, you know, the way Richard Elman does with James Joyce or something? No, you, you can't. You don't really know their thoughts and uh, you couldn't really psychoanalyze them, if you will. Uh, in, a, in a you know profound way, um, you you can you know see what they did and you can you know infer a lot from that. Uh, and there we do have a lot of you know quotations and writing and things like that, which are somewhat revealing. But you know they didn't really look at things the same way that we do in the same sort of analytical way or discuss their quote feelings uh, the way that we do you know endlessly and obsessively. So. You know, it's a different approach, and uh, you could say it's, well, it's more action-oriented, it's more superficial, um, but uh, it's sort of the best we, you know, the best we can do. You know, the relationship between Elizabeth um, and her father, Henry VIII, I mean, imagine having Henry VIII as your father, you know, it's so complicated uh, and psychologically, you know, extraordinary that... uh, you know, we can infer a lot, but uh, we have a little bit in, in, in her words about it. But, you know, it's it's not the kind of thing we would have, you know, from a, a more modern figure. So you have to you have to go with what, you know, what you can in terms of the documents that are left. It, it were, There are some advantages. Both Spain and England at that era were obsessive record keepers. So you have very thorough diaries uh, that, you know, weights and measures and you know where they were, and there's there's a lot of records. Uh, they may not be particularly psychological or insightful, but they're, uh, you know, they you, you get the basics of who, what, where, and when. That that's very good, um, and uh, and you also you see how they, you know, are rapidly advancing and learning and growing, and that's also fascinating as well. Uh, so you know, some of the limitations of this are. You know, how far can you go with the resources at your disposal? And 
but you know you can go overboard as well and so it's uh, I think you have to speculate often it's but you know as I said it's also uh, you know within within reasonable limits and uh, sometimes I'll, I'll read a biography where it seems like the writer has has really gone overboard um, now you know there are all different kinds of approaches to to writing history and biography and what I'm describing are you know some of my own I think it's I have several approaches but uh, you know other people have other ones and they're you know they're quantitative uh, they're Marxist there's you know all sorts of different approaches to it that you know I don't really get into well the new book is called in search of a kingdom of Francis Drake Elizabeth the first and the perilous birth of the British Empire if you want uh, a new window into uh, a a a point in history that still resonates and still uh, we're still feeling the effects of even today this is a book that you must read um, we're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode where you can grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover or even audiobook um, it, Lawrence, if people are just learning about you and want to dig into all the amazing stuff that you do, uh, is there a place where they can connect with you online? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff online, but there's my homepage, which is lawrencebergreen.com. That's Lawrence with a U, and that that will list all the books and links to various articles and reviews. Uh, I think just Googling my name, you know, will also pull up a lot of, you know, articles about the books and interviews and, you know, both online video talks and things like that so i think that's the best way it's actually online you know with the internet these days it's pretty easy and uh anyway those those are the approaches i'd recommend excellent we'll put links to those in the show notes uh as well to make it easy for people to find you uh lawrence this has been so much fun chatting Uh, i love the book we're recommending it to everyone thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today thank you hank great to be with you thank you Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing or proofreading Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started. Dream Author by Sophie Hanna is an immersive 14-month coaching program for writers at any and every level of experience and also for those of you who want to write and are just waiting for the right encouragement and guidance to get you started. Your writing dreams should make you happy. For so many of us, our dreams are not a source of happiness. Instead, they cause us stress, guilt, frustration, and even shame. Here's the great news. All of these feelings are natural and all writers experience them. The problem, though, is that when your writing dreams bring you more anxiety than joy, it affects your resolve and your productivity, and you end up not taking the action you need to take in order to propel your dreams in the right direction so that they can stand a strong chance of coming true. That's why Sophie created the Dream Author Coaching Program to teach anyone who is passionate about writing how to change the way they build, think about, and pursue their writing dreams in order to become their own most powerful ally and advocate for the rest of their writing life. And more great news, once you've learned that skill, it lasts forever. 
Visit dreamauthorcoaching.com to get started today. The Bad Company Complete Series Omnibus, Books 1 through 7. Humanity's Greatest Export, Justice. Space is a dangerous place, even for the wary, especially for the unprepared. The aliens have no idea. Here comes The Bad Company. The Bad Company, Book 1, Colonel Terry Henry Walton takes his warriors into battle for a price in this first installment of The Bad Company. He believes in the moral high ground and is happy to get paid for his role in securing it. Set in the Cutharian Gambit universe, Terry, Char, and their people-humans, werewolves, were-tigers, and vampires form the core of the Bad Company's direct action branch, a private conflict solution enterprise. Join them as they fight their way across Tissakinan 4, where none of the warring parties were what they expected. The seven-book series Omnibus includes The Bad Company, Blockade, Price of Freedom, Liberation, Destroyer, Discovery, Overwhelming Force. Grab the complete Bad Company series by Craig Martell now. How to Be a Badass Witch by Michael Anderley. Virtutus Gloria Mercies. Translation, glory is the reward of valor. Fed up with playing the normal game, recent university graduate, ex-cum laude, ex-soccer star, ex-popular and mostly broke Cara Madonna changes her life when she decides to research how to be a witch and believes it. Cara didn't want to go back east and deal with her overbearing mom, so when university was done, she stayed behind in Los Angeles. Little did she realize how controlling moms can be from the other side of the country. Feeling a little desperate to make her own way, she buys a few books on business and one on a lark, How to Be a Badass Witch. That's when the trouble started. Find out just what trouble a young woman can get into when the magic just might be real. How to Be a Badass Witch by Michael Andrews.